0: Uh, Good morning. Uh, Welcome to uh, this Easter service uh, at Redeemer City Church. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to be with you this morning, even under even under these circumstances. Uh, We are going to continue this morning in a series we've been doing just on the gospel of Jesus. Of course, today talking about the good news uh, that Jesus Christ is in fact risen from the dead. And so we're going to read from Luke's gospel, uh, the resurrection passage there in chapter 24 verses one through 11. Uh, And so if you have a Bible and you wanna open it, you can or it'll be on uh, your screen for you to follow along or in the worship folder that's there in the links provided for you. So let's read together uh, this wonderful, wonderful news, uh, this great Christian memory and story of the resurrection of our Lord from, from the grave. Beginning in verse one, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, This is god's word i'd really like to get right into this message this morning Uh, not not a whole lot by way of introduction and to be quite honest i'm fearful that um i'm not really going to stick very closely to the text because i just want to take the sheer reality of what this text says uh, that the lord jesus was raised from the dead on the third day and apply it in some broad ways to our lives, But really along these two lines, I think there are two things, particularly here in Luke. Luke's account is unique. And here in Luke, uh, you see really these two things coming out. Luke is very clear. He's very honest first about the reality of our right now. There's just an absolute sheer honesty about the reality of our right now. But then secondly, because of what happens in the text, there's also courage because of the hope of a resurrection shaped future. Those are the two things that Luke really wants us to wrestle with as we walk through this text, and they are the two things that I would leave before you, that we can be really, just brutally honest about the reality of our right now, and yet remain full of courage because of the hope of a resurrection-shaped future. So let's just go through the text along those two lines first, then. The first thing... Just to be really honest about what today feels like. And I didn't, didn't really know of any other way to come into this this morning because there is a, a dissonance between what we're celebrating together this morning and our circumstances. It's Easter. Uh, and we're all, I'm in my pink and, and Easter colors, but we're not all together. Most of us, we didn't get to go to the store and buy nice, new, colorful clothes to wear to church, though I've heard some are dressing up and sitting on their couches in their living rooms this morning. We're not gathering with family and friends as we would normally do. The Masters is not on this afternoon, and I want to acknowledge all of that. I don't I don't want to try to put on a happy face and put a happy slant on, on any of that. It stinks. I mean, this is the worst Easter ever in some ways, at least as far as I can remember in my life, and I don't wanna be an Eeyore in saying that. I just want to acknowledge that this is very, very disorienting. It's very strange and unusual. And in many cases, there's a lot of grieving. I'm doing a lot of grieving even as I come and I talk to an empty room instead of seeing you face to face this morning, but maybe all of that means there's an opportunity to enter into this story more profoundly than ever before because there's a dissonance in the text as well, that our Easter this year mirrors. Jesus has been crucified, and his death had signaled the death of all of their dreams for the arrival of his kingdom. And so the first reaction of nearly every person in Luke 24 was profound unbelief. You can walk through the text uh, with me. The women who were first at the tomb in verse 3, it says that their initial reaction was to be perplexed. That word means disoriented. They were without a category to make sense of it all. They, their, their world was flipped upside down. They had spiritual vertigo, so to speak. And these women reported back to the apostles. And instead of being received joyfully, they were dismissive. They didn't believe. They doubted the report. Verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale. And then as you go on in Luke 24 in the parts that we didn't read later in the day, Jesus revealed himself to men on the road to Emmaus and it says that their hearts were slow to believe. They were hard-hearted and cynical because of the dissonance. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, they said, but he's dead and none of it was real. And that was the first Easter morning. Now we live in a world that is often at odds with the hope of resurrection. And that dissonance between what is and what Christianity claims, what Christianity promises can create doubt. Just like it did for the first people confronted with the claim of resurrection. Uh, In verse 38 of Luke 24, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus asked them. And the same can happen to us. Doubts can arise in our hearts. Is any of this true? Does it make any practical difference in my life? You see, Luke's resurrection story is full of people with these kinds of questions. And Christianity is full of people, full of doubting saints. Like Mother Teresa, who in her private letters said things like this. The place of God in my soul is blank. I am empty, no faith, no zeal. Heaven means nothing, even for the apostles. The pillars of the church, it says again, verse 11, I'll keep pulling us back to that, that verse there. It says that resurrection seemed to them at first like an idle tale. That it means nonsense. They, they, they just didn't believe it. They weren't sitting around waiting for Jesus to come walking through the door. They thought it was over. And they did not believe, Luke reports. Now, I have to be honest, I love this so much because that is the way our culture now thinks about the resurrection. Our culture is wrapped in the wrapping paper of secular materialism, which says this world is all there is, and the only reality is what you can observe and scientifically verify. So we we, we believe in the complete absence of anything supernatural. 250 years ago, as as early as 250 years ago, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. But today, for the typical secular person, it's just the opposite. It's almost impossible to believe. Now, what happened? Jamie Smith has said it like this. He said, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now, doubting Thomas, all of us. Now, you might object to that. It might not be true for you. But let me suggest, it probably is for your kids and for your grandkids and will be for the next generations. The centuries-long project of secularism has resulted in what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. The fact that there is no longer any plausible sense that our lives are intertwined in any with anything beyond the here and the now. We no longer have any category or any idea of transcendence. And so the good news is that this is... Ultimately, a dissatisfying place to live because, in the words of one writer, it shackles the human heart inside a world that is just too small for it. Our longing for something more, our longing for transcendence can't be squelched. And so most people in our culture are both unbelieving and hoping for belief at the same time. They're cross-pressured. We live cross-pressured lives, which means... We no longer believe in God as a society, but we miss Him. The question is: what do you do with your longing for transcendence? That just you can't can't be alleviated, it can't be squelched. Do you look properly beyond this material physical world to the one who created it, to the God of the Bible, or do you try to cure it within imminence itself? Now, what does that mean? Well, look again. At verses 5 and 6, it's an interesting thing to point out. But what the angels say to these women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Let me summarize that and say it another way. What you're looking for is not here, the angels say. And that is perhaps the best summary I can give you of the truth of the resurrection, especially for our times. The empty tomb is God saying, What you're looking for cannot be found in this world. Doubt will aim you at the things of this world. But this world's passing away. And so John wrote to the churches, do not love the world. It's passing away. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said that we all desire something that has never actually appeared in our experience. He said it's like a deep secret, which is so painful that we bury it. But then there are experiences that we have in life that rip open the wound. There are moments of transcendence within the imminence that are disorienting. But the thing, the it, is not actually in those moments. It comes to us through them. But the problem is, is we keep mistaking the things of this world for what Lewis called the thing itself. The it. The thing we're really longing for. And when we do, we turn relationships and experiences and the things of this world into idols but here's lewis he says but they are not the thing itself they are only the scent of a flower we have not found the echo of a tune we have not heard news from a country we have never visited our life is full of these sorts of things now lewis also said this he said if i find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And his advice is this, and I think it's really, really good advice for people uh, like us. He said, he said, you know, my advice is doubt your doubts, but listen to your desires. Doubt your doubts, but listen to your desires because your desires are telling you the truth. And so don't settle for treasure on earth that eventually rusts and wears out all the best parts of life were never meant to satisfy they're only meant to point beyond themselves to the real thing the trick is to keep these desires for the thing itself alive despite all of the reasons to the contrary all the losses and the grieving that we have to do and to continue to press on through all of that sadness and all of that disappointment and loss in other words to keep hoping to keep hoping. And this is ultimately what this story here in Luke chapter 24 is about. Again, not the details, but just the event itself. It speaks for itself. Resurrection comes in right there. Luke is writing as an eyewitness to say definitively, this is no idle tale. Jesus Christ is no longer dead. He is alive. And if you were here, that's an amen moment. But this world, then, is not all there is. This world is indeed passing away, and a new world is dawning. And that means that today is giving way to a better tomorrow. And that's, for the people of faith, our hope. Not that everything right now is going the way that we want it to. It's not. It hardly ever is. And that's not what this story is about. So it's not that everything... You know, we can figure out how to make everything go the way we want it to. But the difference is that the resurrection means something else. It means that the world is in a dynamic and not a static state. That change is the status quo in this world. Because of what we read about here. But you see, it all hinges on these events being actual history, which is what Christians believe. That this is not fairy tale. It is an eyewitness account of events that happened in the first century by men whose claim was not plausible then or now, except that it was truth and who were themselves evidence of that truth because of how they were transformed by it. And that brings up a point I'd like to make, again, speaking generally about what we read here in this text. It's generally assumed that religion is based on faith, while secularism is based on evidence and reason, as if you have to choose between the two, and it simply is not true. It is perfectly reasonable to believe the fact of the resurrection based upon sound historical evidence. And I don't have the time in this format to go through all of that, but others have written about it. I just want to make the point that it's perfectly reasonable to believe the fact of this passage based upon sound historical evidence, both what we find in this book and what we find in historical documents, but at the same time to claim that there is no God or that there is a God, both, both of those claims require a certain amount of faith. Tim Keller writes this, he says, there is, no, there, there is no supernatural reality beyond this world and there is a transcendent reality beyond this world are both philosophical, not scientific claims. Neither can be proven in such a way that no rational person can doubt. And therefore, if you struggle with doubt or in your, if you're in the middle of a deep struggle with doubt, the most reasonable thing for you to do is to also doubt your doubt. How could you possibly know the answers to these kinds of questions? They're too big for us. If there is a God, we need a self-revelation from him to know him. That's the only way we could know him. And we have that here in the scriptures. Even more so, we have it in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can be confident of the truth that God is revealing in him because he is not dead, he's alive. And therefore... He is exactly who he claimed to be. That is the truth that the resurrection presses on our souls. And it means that there's hope. We have a resurrection-shaped future. Jesus' bodily resurrection here is the beginning of the ultimate work of God that he's accomplishing in the world, which itself means that the world now, right now, is not what it will be in the future. Luke 24, and all that we read here, is the first day of God's new creation, the culmination of which will be the wedding together of heaven and earth. The coming together of heaven and earth, as we find it in the last chapters of Revelation. N.T. Wright has written about this. He says, listen, this was fascinating. Heaven and earth are made for each other in the same way as male and female. And when they finally come together that will be cause for rejoicing in the same way that a wedding is. He writes, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of this new life, the fresh grass of the kingdom growing through the concrete of corruption and decay in the old world. Resurrection in the Bible doesn't mean an escape from this world. That's not what we see here. It means the transformation of the world into something both like and like what it is now. Like, in that it is called the new earth. Unlike, in that it is the new heavens and the new earth. That's the language the Bible uses. Heaven and earth joined together. God and man once again walking side by side, dwelling together. And this is an important point to make because it also teaches us about the present hope of resurrection, what it means for our today. And it's just this that Jesus' story ended in resurrection. And so, all of our stories will end in resurrection too. The story of your life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the story of your life will end in your bodily resurrection, but so will the stories of your life. I've been thinking a lot about all the language. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's another story, another another passage in the Bible that's full of resurrection imagery. Paul there says this about just what life feels like. He says, we're afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, struck down, but not destroyed. Now that's kind of what the last few weeks have felt like for many of us. We might use those same words to describe uh, this time we're going through. But the reason Paul said that he was knocked down, but not knocked out, that was what he said. I'm knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. And the reason was that he knew that the hard things he was going through would eventually and ultimately turn to good. That Jesus' death became resurrection. And so, for all who are united to him by faith, then every death that, that you endure ultimately will give way to resurrection too. That's what Paul believed. And later, in Luke chapter 24... When Jesus finally comes to his disciples, did you notice we read these 11 verses and Jesus really doesn't show up. He doesn't show up until later in the passage. And he finally makes himself to be seen and touched and, and, and um, you know, marveled at by his disciples. And when he comes to them, the very first thing it says, this is Luke twenty four forty, is that he shows them his hands and his feet. And of course... The significance of that is that it's on his hands and his feet that the marks where the, the, he was nailed to the cross, where the nails went through and pierced his flesh were. And that's significant for two reasons. First, the first is that his wounded hands and feet show us that God is love. And it's what he wanted his disciples to know. That on his hands and his feet were the marks of his love. He was nailed to the cross in love to die for our sins. It was either him or us. And that's what you got to know when you're knocked down by life. It's what keeps you from being knocked out when you get knocked down. It gets you back up and back into the fight to know. And it is the truth of Easter Sunday that the one who was nailed to a cross for our sins is now alive to prove once and for all the truth of God's love for us. But there's a second thing. And the second thing is that his hands and his feet... ...mean that all of our wounds, that all of our heartbreaks, that all of that is a necessary part of the story too. That they are actually how the happily ever after comes. The disciples thought the nails had ruined their lives, but the truth was the nails saved their lives. And it's true of all of our wounds too. Listen to Tim Keller again, he says this, this is how God's salvation works. The resurrection power of God will not just make you forget all the troubles of your life all the tragedies of your life, all the might-have-beens of your life, it will include them. It will explain them. It will redeem them. It will subsume them. It will turn them into sources of joy. Your joy will be enhanced because of these things. Isn't that great news? Does it fill you with courage? Particularly about the hard things you're going through right now? It should. It should, and it should then propel you Out into a life of radical love for God and others and that's the very last thing that I want to say to you And it's this the resurrection leaves us work to do or as N.T. Wright has put it that there is a mission of implementing the resurrection that belongs to the church and it's why 1st Corinthians 15 which is all about the resurrection ends the way that it does and so listen again to verse 58 at the very bottom of that long passage about resurrection it says this therefore so this is the application Of the resurrection. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Man, I've been praying that verse these past weeks for me and for you because that is what the world so badly needs from us in this moment. When faced with the kind of disruption and loss we're experiencing, that we would continue to be steadfast and immovable, full of courage and hope, not fear and panic and selfishness. When almost everyone is closed for business, that we would be abounding in the work of the Lord, not binging Netflix. And it all comes from knowing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that whatever work we're doing in his name for the sake of the kingdom now is not in vain. Listen to N.T. Wright one last time. He says this, and this is so wonderful. He says, You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into a fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support from one's fellow human beings, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in this world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. What we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. That makes me just want to say hallelujah. And I hope it does you too. Beloved, if Christ Jesus has not been raised, then all of life is in vain. But if he has been raised then nothing done in his name is in vain. And here's the good news I have for all of us this morning. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits that God might be all in all. Amen? Pray with me if you would. And so, Father, thank you for the overwhelming gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that you sent him into the world on a rescue mission to save those that you loved. And in his death and in his resurrection, he has accomplished that, just that, that we are saved from our sins. We are saved from death itself. And so filled with the spirit that has been granted to us by his returning to you in heaven and being at the right hand of, of, of God, seated in power and authority. It is his work and his work alone That gives to us all of the good, all of the hope, all of the peace, all of the joy that we need uh, to face what life throws at us when it's not so hard, but even when it's hard like it's been here lately. And so we pray that you would so ground our hearts in the truth, the truth claim of Christianity, that we serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today, that you would ground our hearts in that truth to such a degree that we would be like those Paul writes about, steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that every, even the small things we do, the tiniest little things, are not in vain. We give you our fi- the few fish and the loaves that we have, and we say, here, Lord, multiply them for your great name, for the sake of your kingdom, and then you come and you do just that. And it's what we hope, and it's what we pray, for even this time we have to be together, for this service that we're doing Uh, virtually with one another this morning, would you come and move powerfully upon our hearts in these last moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In a time where there feels like there's been just such an overabundance of bad news, we really do have good news uh, to remind one another of and to give to the world. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the Savior of sinners, has died on the cross, but on the third day risen again. And therefore, because of that great work, uh, this benediction belongs to those who, who believe in him. And so receive these words, uh, and may they bring calm and peace to your soul, and may they cause you to move out in love, to serve, uh, loving God and loving others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Happy Easter.